Is the cost of living pushing people out of Miami? Can Florida's coral reefs survive global warming? And is mass incarceration the way to defeat Central America's gangs? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll ask whether Miami is facing an exodus or just another media cycle. Either way, why can't Miami-Dade County tackle crises that have festered here for decades? We'll also look at the race to rescue our local coral reef from the deadly effects of climate change. And we'll examine Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele's draconian, many say dictatorial, crusade to bring down the gangs whose violence drives so many Central American migrants here. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Census figures show that between 2020 and 2022, people leaving Miami-Dade County to live elsewhere outnumbered those coming in. That's news because population growth is as much a part of Miami as Cuban coffee. Paradise is a people magnet, right? Well, according to two big newspaper articles this week, one in the Miami Herald and another in the Wall Street Journal, that may no longer be the case. Both cited high living costs, especially exorbitant housing prices, and a low-wage economy as the key factors driving a rare and perhaps alarming exodus from paradise. And yet, this is hardly the first time the media have announced Miami's doom. I myself wrote a lengthy article for Time magazine 17 years ago about a Miami out-migration sparked by, that's right, the city's unaffordability and its lousy pay. So has Miami's perpetual in-migration machine finally broken down, or is this just another hiccup? Either way, why can't Miami-Dade ever fix its long-standing quality-of-life problems? What do you think about the reports of an escape from Miami? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is the reporter who wrote this week's fascinating Miami Herald article, Rebecca San Juan. Also with us is Rod Miller, president and CEO of Miami-Dade Beacon Council, the county's economic development organization. Rebecca San Juan, let's, let's cut to the chase. As you point out in your article, the median sales price for a single family home in Miami-Dade County right now is $622,000. That's more than 10 times the median family income here, which is less than $60,000. Miami is without a doubt one of America's most unaffordable cities to live in. Is that gaping disparity at the heart of why so many people told you they were leaving Miami? Yes, real estate is definitely driving out a lot of people because here's the thing, you have renters who are waiting forever, it seems, to try to buy their first home. And unless they have a connection, you know, someone that they know they're selling at a fair price, they're not gonna be able to enter the market. And the other 
you know, especially with the higher interest rates today. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the other part of this is owners, right? I interviewed a lot of owners in this market and they said that, you know, they have a growing family. They want a bigger place than what they bought as newlyweds or they're empty nesters. And if they sell today, they just won't get the same, you know, square footage that they had or they won't if they're empty nesters and want to stay in, in the same neighborhood. They can't find a place because of the lack of supply. Yeah. I'm an empty nester now myself. I, I can identify. But housing is not the only factor, right? Food, insurance, transportation, and other necessities play a role in this? Right. Yes. So other necessities are playing a role. You have inflation. We have the highest rate of inflation. My colleague Vinod Sriharsha reported on this in the country. Um, and so right. that's a major factor. But also there's the lack of public transportation. People were complaining that, you know, there's just the metro rail it doesn't get you to everywhere where you need to go and if you're in a car the problem is well be prepared to be stuck there for a long time because traffic has only gotten worse it particularly doesn't go to south dade where i live so yeah again i can identify but it's not just low income miamians who are feeling squeezed you interviewed fairly well-off middle-class folks here who told you as one said that miami feels like a quote pirate town that sets that's set up only for the really rich did their outlook surprise you it did because last year i focused a lot on low-income individuals and how they were impacted by the housing market um but then i started to hear that a lot of middle class uh households and uh wealthy health households were looking elsewhere um, because they just didn't like the quality of life. You know, they knew Miami long before the pandemic. They've been here for decades. Maybe they were born and raised here um, or they moved here, you know, 30 years ago. And the Miami of today is not the same Miami. Right. I mean, that brings us to the fact that it wasn't just the ballooning cost of living here that's got these residents feeling down. I mean, traffic, out of control development, the general rudeness of people here that's often commented about, those are driving people out as well, right? Yes, exactly. That's right. Rod Miller, you argue in Rebecca's report, though, that this new population data, uh, the declining population it reflects, shouldn't be a big concern for Miami-Dade. Why? Well, you know, I think, you know, it's all about context. If you look between 1970 and 2010, the population of Miami uh, doubled uh, over that time. And you're talking about 3% population loss over the last three years, about 80,000 people. Right. Now, I don't want to I don't want to downplay it. It's an important indicator. But I think you want to look at the long term trend. You realize that during the pandemic, Miami has historically had a large uh, population of influx of immigrants. And of course, that wasn't able to happen during the pandemic. And of course, the housing challenges are, are real. So I don't want to downplay it. But I think it's uh, within the greater context of where the economy is moving. Uh, we see a lot of trends moving in the right direction as no, well. That that does put it in a, in, in, a, in a better perspective. I agree. But Rebecca's report in many ways echoes what journalists have been writing here for a long time. I interviewed folks back in 2006 who were leaving Miami for places like North Carolina. And they told me things like, quote, this is a greedy city. Quote, urban planning is disdained as the enemy here. Quote, it takes me an hour to drive less than 10 miles here. And quote, Miami's economic fluid levels remind me of a third world republic. So what 
Rod has changed or improved in 17 years when it comes to these issues? Well, when you look at the, the amount of capital that's being, you know, you've got over $2 billion going into infrastructure improvements, uh, uh, specifically in the transit area. And so you've got major investments happening in transit. Now, it's not where it needs to be, but there, there are major investments that are happening there to, to modernize the transit system. You look at other investments in infrastructure. There's some of the some of the largest investments in the country in terms of trying to not only tackle uh, transit questions, but also questions of uh, climate action. Uh, beyond that, we, we've got over 5,000 new jobs that we've helped support in the market this year with an average wage of $100,000. And so, okay. you know, and, and we really tried to work to ensure that there are on-ramps for locals to have access to that job. So, so, so of course, in, there are, I don't want to downplay the challenges, but I think the realities of, of, you know, the overall arching trends is that there are smart investments being made. Uh, there's a focus and a recognition that the infrastructure uh, needs to be improved. Um, housing is a question of supply and demand. I mean, uh, and so we've got all of those things at play. Uh, and there's a lot of housing stock that will be coming on online over the next few years that will hopefully help right. to, to uh, right size the, uh, the price elements there. You made the very accurate point in Rebecca's article that Miami is hardly the only large city in the U.S. experiencing crises like housing affordability. San Francisco probably stands out as, as the most glaring example. Is this a national problem and not just a Miami one in your mind? It is a national problem. However, I think I don't want to I don't want to downplay the significance of our challenge. And it's really an income issue. We've got to figure out how do we drive more quality jobs and more access to the quality jobs that will allow for the, uh, uh, that's in Miami. And, and that's and that's really the focus of the Beacon Council. How do we get better jobs, ensure yeah. that folks have access to those jobs and they can afford uh, to live here. Right. I was just going to point that out, that the big difference, though, between Miami and San Francisco is that San Francisco has decent public transportation, for example. But perhaps the biggest thing is that San Francisco is not the low wage economy Miami is. And and you have been pointing out here that you, you believe Miami-Dade County is making the efforts to try to lift the the, 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 the pay scale. Uh, in, in, in this town by, by making workers here less reliant on low-paying sectors like tourism? Is that an accurate way of putting it? That is an accurate, accurate absolutely accurate way of putting it. I mean, we've seen, of course, the increase in, in tech jobs. Uh, one in four jobs in this market is in trade and logistics, and, and those are, are good jobs. We've got a lot of job opportunities in aviation and in healthcare. So we're seeing all of these places, all of these quality jobs that say, they need more workforce. And so we're trying to ensure that uh, there's access, um, th that there is a way for people to upskill and that there's access to, to apprenticeships and those sorts of programs. And, uh, Mar and so Mar Mar Marcella from North Miami is on the line. She also worries a lot about uh, people leaving not just Miami, but the state because of the cost of living. Marcella, what, 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 what's your biggest concern? You're on the air. Marcella, I think you need to turn off your radio if you could, please. Okay. <laughs> right. Yes. So, Marcella, what is your biggest concern regarding this affordability issue and, and whether or not it's driving people out of Miami? Well, uh, my husband and I are semi-retired, and we moved to Miami about 12 years ago. Our, we own our apartment, but the HOA fees are going through the roof, as are the assessments after the Surfside collapse. 
Uh, the insurance companies are raising our our fees and cannot insure us. So, so that's one reason our cost of living is going up. But we also are thinking of leaving Florida. Right. Where where uh, would you where would you go, Marcel, if you left? <laughs> well, believe it or not, we're thinking of going out of the country, uh, even to Mexico. Uh huh. Um, we're leaving Florida because of the political climate in how things are changing around us. Right. So we, it's it's for us is both leaving Miami and leaving the state. All right. Well, thanks, Marcella. We appreciate your perspective. I'm Tim Paget. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about reports of people leaving an increasingly unaffordable Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Rebecca San Juan of the Miami Herald, in your reporting, what are you hearing that sounds promising when it comes to solutions to Miami-Dade's exorbitant housing costs, if there are any? Well, you have uh, Mayor Daniela Levinkava really talking to experts and housing, uh, you know, focused experts and developers on how can they really build more affordable housing. Right. And there's also more funding going towards that. Mm-hmm. I saw, for example, uh, there was just a, a, a $40 million grant just came through, a federal grant for a housing complex uh, down in Cutler Bay. Is that the sort of thing that we're seeing more right. of? Right. That's the sort of thing we're seeing more of, and that's helping bring in more supply of the type of housing that we need. Uh-huh. We don't need the luxury housing. Um, developers love to build that because, yeah. you know, it makes up for the cost of land, the cost of labor, the cost of construction materials. But um, the reality is Miami-Dade's population really needs more affordable housing, workforce housing, and just housing at that at or below the median sales price that we're seeing. Right. And, and, and does that over construction of of luxury housing helped then to drive up the general price of real estate. Yeah, I mean, it does. Yes. Thanks for connecting that dot for us, because that brings me to another question I wanted to ask you. We talk a lot about how in migration from Latin America is really one of the only factors that's keeping Miami-Dade County's net population growth from dropping even further. Is that an accurate That way? is accurate. So, and, yeah. and, and one of the questions that follows from that then is, is it still the case that Latin American purchases of condos, for example, contribute to the higher cost of housing here? So the thing is, uh, during the pandemic, we did not see so many Latin Americans coming into Miami. And the reason is because of um, restrictions, travel restrictions. Right. But things are changing. And actually, we saw a boost um, late last year, starting late last year, in some pre-construction sales, um, you know, buildings that were launching construction soon and developers were uh, wanted to, you know, sell some units, um, they started to see Latin Americans coming back. A lot of people from Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, that's where we're starting to see interest coming back. But so far, that pressure on housing mm-hmm. has really been at, you know, at the fault of people coming from across the Northeast right they were escaping that cold yeah. climate high taxes and strict um uh covid-19 uh restrictions yeah and rod miller that brings me to another question i had for you um looking at in migration not from latin america but from other parts of the united states particularly tech centers like silicon valley on the one hand we want to see those people come in to to diversify 
our economy, make it more of a high-tech economy. But by the same token, that influx too can put pressure on housing prices, correct? That is correct. That, that influx does put pressure. But ideally, if we're bringing in companies and not just individuals from those markets, there should be job creation tied to it. And we should be able to find ways to ensure that you know our local workforce can tap into the additional opportunities brought by many times investors and companies um, that are moving here from those other markets. Mm -hmm. And uh, do do you see this 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 tech high tech influx coming into Miami continuing? I mean, is it is it uh, is it something that's long term for the city and, and not just a short term flash in the pan? Yeah, it'll be long term, I think. But uh, I think we realize that tech is a very generic category. It cuts across a variety of sectors. So I think we're going to continue to see the trend. But our job is going to be how do we actually ensure that local companies and local people can take advantage of the opportunities presented by the tech sector growth as well as growing other segments of our economy all right uh, we have peter on the line from little havana and the point he'd like to make is that we need more multiple family dwellings uh like there are in california he says um peter in little havana what particularly do you mean by that well what i would suggest is um the answers are out there, but I'm not sure the community or the politicians who are elected want to actually um, apply them. And what I would suggest to you is any uh, Airbnb enforcement, a lot of illegal Airbnbs going on based on zoning, be, um, elimin- and this one's going to wind everybody up, eliminate the homestead exemption. People who've been locked into a house for quite some time, the house is worth a million, they pay 200000 for it, they're getting taxed at 200000 mm-hmm. There's obviously some sort of, um, you know, there's some sort of breakdown there. If, if you were taxed based on what your real value was, I'm not sure that everybody would actually sit in their houses. And then point number three, California just passed a law that now will allow multifamily development within single-family communities, which is really a lightning rod issue. Mm-hmm. But if you think about some of these large single-family houses with all of this dirt, you could put that mother-in-law's uh, uh, cottage in the back like a lot of people do right. legally or illegally here. Okay. You would be well, able to provide some supply. So, okay, uh, Pete. Great P- conversation. Thank P- you. No, no, Peter. Thank you. Rebecca, in the 30 seconds we have left, what's your response to Peter's point? So I think he brings up a lot of great points, but my only concern is regarding the homestead exemptions, right? That so, does sound controversial. Yes. yes here, here. But it's beyond being controversial. It's like that's helping a lot of middle class families stay mm-hmm. in place. If not, would they be able to afford staying in Miami? Yeah. I don't think so. Good point. Rebecca San Juan covers real estate for the Miami Herald. Rod Miller is president and CEO of the Miami-Dade Beacon Council. Thanks very much to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, rescuing Florida's precious coral reef from global warming. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We've known for years that climate change and global warming are toxic for the ocean's coral reefs, which are vital to life in the sea. That includes Florida's 350-mile-long reef, most of which lies right off the South Florida coast. But this year, the threat level has spiked thanks largely to an unprecedented rise in sea temperature, what some scientists are calling a breakdown of the Earth's maritime cooling system. That has created a deadly wave of what's known as coral bleaching. At some sites, like Sombrero Reef off the Florida Keys, 
That bleaching has killed vast swaths of boulder and staghorn coral. Scientists are racing to rescue what they can, and just last night they had some success when some new coral was spawned, thanks in part to some romantic Barry White and Marvin Gaye music. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little, a little later. Are you aware of the threat to Florida's coral reef and how important that reef is? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining us from the Florida Keys is WLRN's environment editor, Jenny Stiletovich, who's been closely following this coral rescue effort for us. Jenny, there's some big and good news that you witnessed last night at the University of Miami's Coral Reef Lab, right? That's right. So they had coral that they had rescued from uh, their nurseries off Key Biscayne spawn in the lab. They spawned Thursday or Wednesday night, and then they spawned again on uh, on on last night, late last night. Mm-hmm. Right, and and we learned that <laughs> coral are a lot like people in the sense that they could use a little, shall we say, romantic encouragement to see this spawning process to fruition. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so so. On Wednesday night and again on Thursday night, they were just kind of sitting there in their tanks. And Andrew Baker on Wednesday night had some success playing Barry White. Um, they spawned right after he started playing the music. So last night he cranked it up again. And uh, sure enough, it took a couple of Barry White songs and then Marvin Gaye did the trick last night. Well, let, let's let's play a clip of marine biologist Andrew Baker, who you're just referring to, explaining to you how that whole coral regeneration thing plays out, complete with a little love song in the background. I think the first time I ever did spawning, which was in the 1990s, it was in Panama, and a pretty remote location where there's very little light pollution from um, cities and civilization. And I remember sitting out there on a small boat, basically, waiting for this to happen. And then the moon rises over the ocean, and it's pretty special, uh, especially if the conditions are calm and perfect. And, you know, I don't think I'll forget those, those nights. That song playing behind him, by the way, was Moonlight by XXX Tentacion. So, Jenny, walk us through that coral reef spawning process you've been observing in recent weeks. It starts with the farming of coral colonies out in the ocean, correct? That's right. So probably more than a decade ago, around the um, mid-2000s, scientists started creating nurseries of of coral. They figured out that they could grow staghorn, the fast-growing coral. Um, They could grow that pretty quick, and that was one of the the coral that we had lost, elkhorn and staghorn, which are these branching coral and provide a lot of habitat and also shred storm surge, had largely been wiped out. So to rebuild the reef, they started building, uh, creating these nurseries. But then they figured out if they were putting the same old coral back out on the nurseries that were susceptible to um, rising ocean temperatures, it was like an endless process. And they realized they needed to make more sustainable coral. They started to, they needed to look for hardier coral. Right. Um, and so they went in the lab and they started isolating genotypes. They looked for a coral that did well in warmer waters um, off our reef, and then they would try and breed those in the lab. A huge breakthrough happened about five years ago when a researcher in London figured out how to spawn the coral in the lab. Um, Because once you can spawn them in the lab um, and control that and protect those little coral babies like in a nursery and get them going uh, when they're the most vulnerable, 
that was just sort of a game changer. Um, and so, so with this process, they they taken they they rescued the coral off the out of the nurseries because they were afraid that they were going to bleach. So that was step one. Is just like right, and they and they moved about the, four hundred of those colonies, as we call them, back to the University of Miami's Rosenstiel lab, right? Yeah. So as of Tuesday, that's how many. I'm not. I, I'm sorry. I didn't ask him how many more they'd gotten by last night. Okay. Um, but yes. Yeah, so that was to to preserve the the genetic diversity that they developed over all these years of of nursery farming coral. But then the second thing they really wanted to do was to try and get them to spawn. Um, coral normally spawn this time of year in August. Um, and, and spawn before most leaching occurs. Leaching is like hurricane season for coral. I mean, when it gets warm in the summertime, yeah. there are routine, you know, bleaching happens. South Florida's reef has had eight, I think, bleaching events since 1987 that are significant, you know, but bleaching can happen on a smaller scale. Yeah. Um, and so they really wanted to, to get these coral in the lab and preserve that spawn that they were worried was going to get damaged by the heat wave, the ocean heat wave. Mm-hmm. And, and Jenny, let's let's back up a little bit then now at this point and, and, and to the emergency itself. Remind us first why coral reefs are so crucial for our oceans and, and our planet. Well, so they are a huge habitat. They're the nursery for a lot of ocean life that feeds the planet. Um, they are a barrier to hurricanes and typhoons and storms and whatever, you know, wherever they are on the planet. Our reef here in South Florida is the only inshore barrier reef in the continental United States. Um, they've done studies on how much protection the reef provides for us. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the, 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 the exact amount right now, but it's in the billions. Um, just as a coastal barrier, um, aside from the fact that it's a huge tourism draw, um, that right. it is, a, again, a nursery for, for marine life, for, you know, all the snapper, the grouper, everything we love to eat. <laughs> right. It's out on the reef. Like you said, it's, it's, it's like a habitat for them. Um, but, but what is happening out in our oceans this year that has brought us to this deadly tipping point, or at least what seems like a deadly tipping point for coral reefs like Florida's? Right. So as the planet warms, as more carbon is put into the atmosphere, the oceans absorb all that carbon and that's that and, and heat and they're warming up. Um, and a few years ago, when the United Nations International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, did their their global assessment, they warned that these marine heat waves were going to become more commonplace as ocean temperatures rise. And, and that's exactly what we got this year was a big old ocean heat wave hit the waters off South Florida. You had um, gauges very close to shore, so not off on the reef, but hitting, you know, 98 degrees, 100 degrees. That's just really hot water. Um, and so, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> th- th- those, those are unprecedented temperatures too, right? I mean, I, I just heard this morning uh, from, from uh, I, I believe, an organization in Europe was saying that we are seeing record high m- marine temperatures this year. Is that is that for accurate? For this time of year, for this time for this of year. time of year, right? They um, said, uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that again is what's got the coral people so nervous. Is that normally it's not this hot this soon? The coral spawn. They send thousands and thousands of babies out into the sea, and then when the temperatures increase and there's the threat of bleaching, at least they've they've gotten through the spawning part. Right. So so explain how bleaching occurs and why it can be. Not only why, but how it can be so fatal to coral. 
So coral need algae to, to survive. They have this symbiotic relationship with algae that sort of live inside them that produce the energy that the coral need. And when coral are both light and heat stressed for too long, so if they, if it, you know, normally summer we get afternoon showers, the clouds, you know, the sky, so, so it's not quite so bright all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also cool the water. So if you have those conditions prolonged, then coral will start to stress out and start to spit out the algae um, because they are just freaked out, you know. So they spit out the algae, and then and eventually they die um, because they're missing their energy source. Right. So bleaching can be a death sentence for, for coral. Yes, yes. Um, absolutely. O- over time. And speaking of over time, uh, you alluded to how often this tends to occur. Was the last bad bleaching occurrence... I, I think you mentioned back around 2014, 2015? Yep, they had a back-to-back bleaching event. Um, and and so in UM's, the Diego Lerman's two nurses off Key Biscayne, he lost half uh, his coral uh, in that bleaching event. This time around, uh, they were able to save a lot, but there's thousands still out there, and he is very worried that it's going to be worse than that. 2014 2015 bleaching event and and they could lose all of them so far you know they the, the coral that they've got two one nursery is a little bit deeper than the other one and the coral are in pretty good shape um i will say that uh a team from andrew baker's lab was um off key largo last night collecting spawn to see if the coral in the in the wild were spawning and they did they got um spawn from elkhorn coral which are super endangered so that was uh they bring that back to the lab um they will either use some of that to fertilize the spawn from last night's lab bred uh Mm -hmm. coral um and then the other they can freeze and save it um and another thing that's good to point out is the wednesday night um spawning they were you know they were worried that the heat stress may not the viability of these babies may not be great But it turned out last night he told me that 90% from that first night fertilized. So that's a really, that's a good sign amidst all this awfulness. Coral babies. I think you've just added to the uh, scientific lexicon there, Jenny. (laughs) I'm Tim Padgett. This is his term. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the effort to rescue our coral reef from global warming. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Jenny, when and how did the whole idea of coral nurseries, as you've been referring to it, like the one the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, run, how did those emerge to keep these reefs from essentially becoming extinct thanks to global warming? How did that whole idea come about? Well, so reef restoration has been, or trying to preserve reefs or build them up has been around, but they used to remember scuttle ships and they would, they would sink things um, and hope that coral would grow on those things. And it wasn't very natural. It wasn't the, you know, the habitat that we liked. And, right. and they figured out, like, if we're going to restore the reef, let's just restore it with their coral. And once they figured out that they could grow it in, a nur- in an offshore nursery, um, then, then they started, those proliferated, proliferated up and down um, the coast. The mm-hmm. Marine Lab has some down in the Keys. Um, coral Restoration Foundation has some. Uh, Diego Lerman actually started one in the mid-2000s. So he was working with the Nature Conservancy. Um, and then they, uh, the, the, the UM's nurseries have been around 
um, I think he started them in like 2007. Right. Uh, so and and I. So that- I I, I snorkeled with NOAA scientist Billy Causey back in 2016 at Lou Key off, off Key West when he was showing Cuban scientists how this was done, trying to create sort of a, a partnership with them for this effort. The coral is farmed on what looks like a bunch of undersea Christmas trees, as they call them. Is, is this now sort of the standard coral regeneration and rescue method for, for the entire world? It has spread around the Caribbean. Um, there is cooperation widespread among, you know, Caribbean countries uh, with, with, uh, in the coral world because um, it's all kind of part of the same, same reef. Um, so, so they are definitely using those, those Christmas tree-like things anchored to the floor where they just hang the coral branches. Yeah. They call them frags, I think, and uh, let them grow. Um, and they get big enough, and then they, and they get a bunch of volunteers, usually, yeah. to then go cement them to the reef. Can we say this latest crisis was the kind of D-Day emergency the whole coral restoration project was designed to eventually confront? I mean, as I mentioned, scientists were looking at whole coral die-offs at places like Sombrero Key and Chica Rocks off the Keys, right? That That is exactly right. They have been warning <laughs> and preparing for this uh, for, for years. I wrote about it five years ago. Um, one of the issues they have is, is the scale and size. Um, they're doing what they can, but operations, if we're going to have these kinds of widespread bleaching and it's going to go down into the Caribbean as well, um, they need operations to be much bigger. Um, right, more, more, more tank, out. more tank space for these, uh, for these coral babies, as you were calling them. Exactly, exactly. Right, and um, finally, Jenny, I, I wanted to ask. I mean, even with these Herculean efforts that you've been watching, and and all that romantic music as well, <laughs> is is this a battle marine scientists can win if global warming keeps us keeps up this way? Um, you know, it's funny. I talked to one of the students who was there last night, who's a master's student and just starting out her career, and, and I was like, you know, here you are at the beginning, and you're in basically what feel like apocalyptic <laughs> conditions. Yeah. So what do you think? And, and she does. I mean, they feel like the, um, the number of advances they've made with fawning and breeding coral in just a short amount of time, um, they won't solve the problem. I mean... We need to. The only way you're going to fix it is really to to stop global warming, right? right. You've got to stop, stop the temperatures from rising. That's mm-hmm. that's the big thing. Mm-hmm. And these are band aids. They can keep the reef going if the temperatures keep climbing. You know, you hit a tipping point where there's no going back. But for yeah. now, um, you know, it's it's sad and it's depressing. And and but there is some optimism at least for now. Yeah, um, and in, and in these, and these efforts. And you saw some of that hope this week. Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's environment editor. Jenny, thanks as always for the great reporting. And by the way, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Still... I'm about to get a, a dolphin sandwich. <laughs> All right. Enjoy it. Still to come, is El Salvador's mass incarceration crusade the way to beat Central America's violent gangs? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN.
El Salvador not so long ago had the world's highest homicide rate. That was due to the violence of the Matas, the vicious and tattooed street gangs like MS-13 that control much of the country. Today, El Salvador has the world's highest incarceration rate. That's due to President Nayib Bukele's crusade to break the gangs by throwing their members and seemingly anyone even remotely connected to them behind bars. This matters here because the gangs that terrorize not just El Salvador but much of Central America are responsible for driving so many migrants to Florida and the U.S. Bukele is being praised in many circles, especially among Salvadorans themselves, for reigning in the gang plague. But Bukele, a young, brash populist with an admittedly troubling authoritarian streak, is also being widely condemned for indiscriminately jailing so much of his country's population and violating human rights in the process. This week, for example, Bukele had troops encircle an entire province of El Salvador. Is this really the way to solve Central America's gang crisis? Let us know what you think. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Jose Miguel Cruz. He's director of research at Florida International University's Latin America and Caribbean Center and a Central American expert. Jose, good to have you on. Thank you for having me, Tim. Jose, let's let's first quickly talk about the problem of the gangs or matas in El Salvador and Central America. I mean, if if we were to ask Salvadoran or Guatemalan or Honduran migrants who arrive in Florida, would they likely be telling us that a big reason they left to come here was to escape the violence of matas like MS-13 and, and Barrio 18? Absolutely. Uh, gangs have been a, a, a security problem in, in, in Central America for for some time now, I would say at least two decades. Yeah. Uh, and although, you know, the, the manifestation of the problem is different in each country, indeed, uh, uh, Hondurans, Guatemalans, and Salvadorans have been fleeing because of gangs and criminal groups basically controlling entire communities. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so everyone agrees Central America's gangs have to be fought. And that brings us to Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele's plan to fight them. How would you describe the method he's using to bring down the Maras? Well, he's using certainly a very, dracon- very draconian measure, of, uh, one that I will call a mano dura on steroids. Uh, right, they, mano, uh, mano, mano dura, meaning the hard hand, the iron fist. Exactly, the iron fist uh, that was tried actually 20 years ago, but on steroids, because now basically has, uh, President Bukele has concentrated power, uh, all the power in the security forces, right? Right. So certainly he is, he is uh, doing that. But there is an important difference that people usually don't talk about, and important to understand what's happening in Salvador, and is that his strategy is a two-pronged strategy. I mean, we know about this strategy of the state of exception, right? Uh, this very hard uh, uh, crackdown on gangs, but at the same time, he has been negotiating with 
gangs with the leadership of those gangs to avoid some backlash from the gangs themselves. Right. I, I, yeah, so, I, 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 want, I want to get to that in just a second, uh, uh, Jose, because that, that is a very important point we want to make. But, but I just I, 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 I want to stick with our discussion of what he's doing right now. I mean, this week, he even sent out 8,000 soldiers and police to the rural province of Cabanas, right? Mm-hmm. Why did he do that, and and what what is the what is the effect been? Well, the justification is because over the weekend, uh, 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 supposedly or allegedly, uh, gangs attacked uh, a police post, right? Uh, and then uh, after that, he decided to launch the almost nearly uh, military operation in the whole uh, in the in the whole province, right? Uh, uh, curiously, he, he did that after he has declared that, you know, just 24, uh, 24 hours after he had declared that Salvador was a very safe country, right? Right. The, the homicide uh, rate has gone down in the last, in the last couple of right. years. And, 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 well, he launched this, as I say, quasi-military operation in, in, the, in right. the department. And I and, and, and I, 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 I would think it would be reasonable to, to expect that we're probably going to see a lot of mass arrests from this operation, the kind of mass arrests of, as I said before, not just the gang members, but seemingly anyone even remotely connected with them that has just jamming El Salvador's prisons and giving it the highest incarceration rate in the world, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, at this point, uh, there are... Two percent of Salvadorians in prison now. Two percent of the whole population of Salvadorians are in prison now because there are more than seventy thousand people in prison right now in Salvador. Certainly, many of them are gang members, but not all of them are gang members. And, and human rights organizations are saying that a lot of of these people are are innocent people, right? Uh, right. They have anything we can. Now, go, going back to the to the important point you were making earlier, I mean, isn't Bukele just simply fighting a problem that he helped cause? Because early in his presidency, he allegedly made a deal, and this has been well documented by um, by Salvadoran media and like like El Faro, uh, the leading investigative newspaper there. He allegedly made a deal with El Salvador's gangs that if they brought down the number of murders they commit, which would help him politically, he'd look the other way when it comes to their other crimes like extortion and drug trafficking. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Yes, yeah, that's very accurate. And and actually, uh, uh, as part of this crackdown, what is interesting about this crackdown is that while he was imprisoning a lot of uh, you know rank-and-file gang members and innocent people, some of his deputies, some of his, you know, people in, in his government were taking some of the leader, gang leaders, out of out of out of prison and out of El Salvador, sending send them to Mexico, and as a way to avoid having them in prison, or even even opposing, uh, there was a process of extraditing some of the gang leaders to the United States and. And the Supreme Court, controlled by him, basically stopped that process. So right now, there are no gang leaders being extradited to the United States, right? right. Uh, but in some ways, that's mm-hmm. viewed 
as protecting these gang members. Now, I, either way, Bukele's crusade so far seems to be very popular with Salvadorans, at, at least those Salvadorans who haven't been thrown in prison yet, right? I, I mean, Bukele's approval ratings in El Salvador right now is sky high, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is the highest, I would say, arguably the highest in the whole in the whole America, right? Right. Uh, he, his approval ratings uh, basically are around 70, 80 percent, right? And, and in part because of the success of imprisoning gang members and bringing some sense of safety and security in communities, in communities that in the past were basically sieged by, by, by gangs. Right. But what is the long-term danger of this short-term victory Bukele is claiming against El Salvador's gangs? What's, what's the danger here, Jose? The, the problem with, the, with this approach Ian, is that uh, at some point, I mean, he is certainly imprisoning a lot of gang members, right? Right. Uh, but the problem with this is that uh, at the same time, uh, there are no really consistent policies to address the the, the issues that uh, gave rise to the gangs in El Salvador, right? right. I mean, there, uh, there's a human rights component to this to this situation. And, and in, in, in addition, there is a human rights component, right, which is important. Uh, in, you know, a lot of people being in prison and being denied so they, they, their rights, uh, not only gang members, but also innocent people, right? And also, in, in, in the long run, I mean, all, all that we know about uh, criminal organizations in the past is that these criminal organizations get stronger in prison. The more you concentrate them in prison without really any other response, the more they will become strong and strong. Right. strong because no, basically you give them opportunity to to networking and reorganizing. Yeah, that's a particularly uh, true with El Salvador's Matas, right. I'm Tim Padgett. Exactly. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele's anti-gang crusade. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. In the larger picture, Jose, does this also just threaten to make Bukele an even more authoritarian leader than he's already become in El Salvador? Well, in essence, his state of exception, you know, the, the key component of his strategy is basically a strategy that is denying the basic rights of, of, of people, right? So right, and you when, can, you, when, you say you state, can, when you say state of exception, you're referring to these, these really... Uh, broad powers that the uh, Salvadoran Congress, which he controls, has given him to do just about anything he wants to fight the gangs, right? Exactly, exactly. So, and that means that at this point, anybody can be detained and imprisoned just because the security forces want you to take this prison. There is no way, there's no way to protect anybody, anybody in the country from, you know, the, the wish of security forces to take you to prison. Right. So there's nothing that will protect your rights, right? So, so in essence, that's a very authoritarian measure, right? right? And but uh, but and, but the popularity but, of this gives him a better chance of essentially violating the constitution to run for re-election next year. That's right. That's right. And that's but and he's actually writing sort of his uh, re-election campaign on that. Right. So yeah. 
Definitely. Right. And and we, we should point out, Jose, uh, it's not just Salvadorans who are cheering Bukele in this effort. A lot of U.S. political leaders, especially conservative Republicans like Florida Senator Marco Rubio, are also applauding him, right? Why? Well, that's a good question, Tim. And, and it's not clear why he is, uh, especially given sort of the, tr- uh, the trouble story, history of Bukele with, you know, uh, with human rights. But not only that, Bukele was somebody who, who, whose uh, early career was very much involved with the left, right, with the communists in El Salvador. And actually, one of his main business partners as, as of now is a former, you know, guerrilla leader. Right. right? So, so it's, it's hard to understand why somebody like Senator Rubio is, you know, is basically uh, sympathetic to, 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 to tell it. Right. And Jose, finally, in just the 30 seconds we have left, I mean, another fear here is that what Bukele is doing in El Salvador could have a toxic effect on democracy across Central America and Latin America, correct? That's right. I mean, there are the the government of of, of Honduras, for instance, and some candidates in the the campaign, in the the electoral campaign in in Guatemala, are saying that they're, they're willing to replicate uh, Bukele's model. And actually, right. uh, Honduran President Chimara Castro is doing some, right. some kind of, uh, of, Ho- of, of, of policy. Ho- Jose, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, for time. Jose Miguel Cruz is the Director of Research at Florida International University's Latin America and Caribbean Center. Jose, many thanks. Thank you, Tim. Finally on the roundup, get your reggae on. I don't mean Bob Marley. I'm talking about Khadija Bunny-Smith and Becky Spencer and all the reggae girls, the Jamaican women's national soccer team. This week, they eliminated powerhouse Brazil from the World Cup in Australia and now advanced to the tournament's round of 16. As that call from Fox Sports made clear, Tiny Jamaica is a big underdog in this World Cup. In fact, this is only the second time the reggae girls have appeared on that stage. They've ranked, they're ranked 43rd in the world, but they tied number 5 France and number 8 Brazil. Next Tuesday, they'll face Colombia, another Cinderella team from the Americas, who beat number 2 Germany. Here in South Florida, we'll be rooting for both of them and, of course, for the U.S., who play Sweden on Sunday. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.